What are your thoughts on the line, nobody puts baby in a corner? Nobody puts baby. It's a little on the nose. <laughs> Welcome to the episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And today is the final episode of our summer movie series this month. Uh, it's We're getting towards the end of summer. Uh, it's the end of August. Uh, enjoy the weather that you have currently. Uh, but Thomas, what have we talked about this month regarding the summer movie series so far or summer movies so far? We talked about how kind of closely tied the genre is with with coming of age, um, I guess, because summer seems like a I don't know. Summer's summer's when you break out of your norm as a kid. Right. You know, it's like nobody comes of age in school. except maybe the breakfast club. <laughs> but that's like uh, those detention. It's just not it's not a cinematic. But um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of these have to do with coming of age um a lot of them have to do with kind of the way that that summer makes time stretch which is something i was not expecting when we when we got into this series but like all the movies that we've covered are just about how like how much longer the days feel in in summertime and we'll see that again today they might not talk about you know how how long the time felt but like you know it's pretty obvious it's like babies packed a lifetime worth of experience into this like week at camp um yeah so so yeah that's that's a lot of stuff and then and then a lot of these are period pieces which seems interesting a, yep. a lot of like retrospective yep. looking back on the summer when you were a kid as as the as the filmmaker as the storyteller uh voiceover i think i think yep. from from the the month i think everybody wants some is the only film that didn't have some sort of voiceover Yep. And then just kind of like the the look of it, you know, this this kind of a, a haze or a golden haze or the it, a lot of times you're you're finding the director and the cinematographer are trying to find a way to visualize the way that nostalgia feels, the way that like looking back on your childhood feels in your head. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree with all that. It's like I I expect coming in, and we'll talk about this later at the very end of the show, but like yeah, the the kind of autobiographical nature to some movies also too i think like because there's more summer movies out there than what we picked so i think it also just shows the type of movies that we're interested in mm -hmm. that we picked these kind of because like jaws doesn't follow some of these these things mm -hmm. we're talking about but a lot of these we just kind of focused in on where it has that narration that nostalgic view of the summer and about a more innocent time um and and also again like you said too i noticed when we're doing when we're doing the same lot last week with hunter where i was like oh yeah all the movies we picked are all period pieces <laughs> like every single one of them um and in some cases with today and actually last week with sandlot a very similar period this takes place in 63 we're talking about dirty dancing today but this takes place in 63 and sandlot took place in 62 so mm -hmm. it's kind of fun and we've talked about american graffiti on here before and that takes place in 62 as well and it's kind of that weirdly that like baby boomer generation of the 80s and 90s looking back on a specific period in their life before as i told talked about last week before like the jfk assassination was like a, as like a big part of like that's where like the flagpole is for like when innocence for some of these kids kind of was over when they became kind of aware of reality um, and so with these movies, you're seeing kind of that last 
moment of innocence in some way or uh, again of childhood going into adulthood Mm -hmm. um but yeah you say like these these kind of autobiographical nature to these films either through narration as they're being told or you can tell like everybody wants some that the filmmaker is is kind of your your narrator in a way with Mm -hmm. this like it's show they're showing you this specific point in their lives that they remember or are kind of integral and they are kind of uh upbringing in a yeah. way and also uh, and we've talked a little bit too about like mentors in the summer movie a lot of the time we talked about everybody wants some i kind of thought it last week sandlot with hunter like there's kind of this and it's also kind of apparent in the coming of age genre where it's like someone's pu- pushing this person along and they're having to learn the ways of the world through this person in some way um this is a little bit different with how it, i don't know if it's a mentor role but there is that kind of like someone is learning mm-hmm. something yeah. about a new a new perspective on the world because of another character with I think with baby learning from Johnny. Yeah, is yeah the this thing. is definitely the only one we've done where uh, the main character falls in love with the, the mentor character. The mentor basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, that's that's even, kind of the recap. Even though of the we genre. all fell in love with with Finn in uh, with Finn. In yeah, that's also. the thing we all. Yeah, it's it's he's a supporting player, but he's number one in our hearts. Uh, but yeah, so that's kind of the recap of the summer genre for this series. Uh, before we dive into today's movie, in today's movie, we're talking about Dirty Dancing and possibly uh, just a cultural phenomenon. The movie was when it was released in 1987. But Dirty Dancing, for those that do not know, is the story of a teenage girl, Frances Baby Houseman, played by Jennifer Grey, as she and her family spent a few weeks at an upscale resort in the Catskills in New York during the summer. While there, she befriends the staff of the resort, and one day, Baby meets one of the resort's entertainment dancers, Penny, who needs to receive an abortion, uh, which will take place on the night of a performance that would bring her and her dance partner a big payday. Penny can't go to it, so Baby wants to help out. She helps them give give money for the abortion of this traveling doctor. Um, and Penny, because she can't make the performance, her dance partner, Johnny Castle, played by Patrick Swayze, uh, decides to train Baby, a non-trained dancer, to replace Penny for the performance. As the rehearsals progress along with the summer, Baby and Johnny soon develop feelings for one another, creating one of the most popular and most well-known romance romances of the 1980s uh, in film. The film was written by Eleanor Bergstein, uh, choreographed by Kenny Ortega, produced by Linda Gottlieb, and directed by Emil Arlino. That's kind of your major players. Uh, the film also stars Jerry Orbach as Jake Houseman, Baby's father, Cynthia Rhodes as Penny, uh, who's Johnny's original partner, Kelly Bishop as Mrs. Houseman, and Jane Bruckner as Lisa Houseman, Baby's sister. So, uh, what sh- I, we haven't talked about this really. This is one of the ones that I don't know your views on it coming into it as much as the other ones, but what's your kind of history with Dirty Dancing, Thomas? This this one it's it's funny. This one is right up there with um, Stand by Me, and that this is probably the first time I've ever sat down and watched this movie all the way through. Um, wow! Okay, <clears throat> seen pieces of it a million times on television. I feel like I always like to to say like what what station used to have this movie back in the day. I feel like like it was VH1, VH1, yeah, VH1. It used to be yep. movies that movies rock, that rock. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like this one was always when VH1, it was like around the time VH1 was doing, I love the eighties and like everything on VH1 was like eighties themed. 
Mm-hmm. And this was one that was like, you know, you're cha- you're flipping the channels. You get to this one, you're like, all right, I'm going to watch the training sequence. I'm going to watch him practicing the lift in the water. Then, then you know, yeah. a commercial comes on, you flip away, and then a little bit later, you're like, oh, let me flip back and see the final dance scene. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know that I'd ever seen, like, them pull up to camp before. Like, I, I don't think I'd ever been there for the first 10 minutes of this movie. But yeah, very, very familiar with this film, but um, first time, first time all the way through. yeah. And there were a lot, and I'd seen it once before all the way through. And I, I, of course, like I think any type of clip show that deal like back in the day growing up, say on VH1 or whatever, like, I love the eighties. So many times you saw clips of like the final dance or, or the love is strange sequence or the, the famous like lift in the water when they're practicing. So like you've seen all that, but like the plot of it, is kind of forgotten. I think even people who love the movie, uh, which we'll probably mm-hmm. talk about today, but yeah, it's, it's one, I think I just saw once previously all the way through. I think that was, this was one again, like you said, kind of like in high school where I had, uh, some teachers, uh, I think our guidance counselor was very obsessed with the eighties and they were specifically upset, specifically obsessed with Patrick Swayze, which I get. Um, <laughs> so this was one that everyone kind of talked about. Uh, and so, yeah, I hadn't, and my, I think my mom really loves this movie for sure, but I haven't revisited this movie since then. But it's always kind of one that I know as like one that was it was a massive hit for one. And I always knew mm-hmm. like the big thing always kind of stuck with me is like, oh, yeah, Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze hated each other when making it. <laughs> um, and that was always kind of the big thing. Like, How do they hate each other so much but have such great chemistry? And we'll talk about that today um but yeah it's like i it's always one i've respected and i've always kind of it's always shocking of how well this movie did when it came out Mm. and we'll go more on that later um but yeah big cable staple stuck in between like breakfast club and like weird science or something on vh1 movies that rock it feels like yep yeah exactly um but yeah and so this time it's to go kind of like what my initial thoughts on like this time coming back to it it's uh it weirdly not in the way people probably think or the way people probably thought at the time, but weirdly still has relevance in a lot of different ways. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, f- we'll talk about kind of the, the abortion subplot, but even just like the, the, the waiter reading the fountainhead. Like I was just <laughs> like, Oh, okay. That's there. Oh, um, this, this wealthy young white man skews yeah. far right. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. But which the way it's like, it was so like specific of like, Hey, here's, it's all yeah. in this book. You ever, <laughs> do you even, <laughs> baby, have you ever listened to Andrew Tate? You should check him out sometime. <laughs> oh God. That's a, that's a separate story that happened to me this week. Um, <laughs> side thing. This will probably, no one probably care, but we were, we were out recently uh a few friends and i uh and there was a date going on next to us and some guy brought up andrew tate and like (laughs) trying to like kind of convince the girl of why he was great and i was like i have never seen a date torpedo so fast (laughs) like so fast um sorry that's a tangent on today's episode but i was just yeah that's what happened but yeah so but yeah there is there is some relevance in this movie in a lot of different ways um but let's dive into kind of the history of how this movie got to production so the story of dirty dancing begins with one person and that's eleanor bergstein the film screenwriter 
Born in 1938 in New York City, Eleanor was the youngest of two daughters to Joseph and Sarah. Joseph was a doctor and Sarah was a housewife. Uh, because her father was a doctor, their family was very well off, I think, financially at that point, growing up in the 40s and 50s. And because her father was a doctor, uh, they he was kind of constantly working during the year. So their kind of off time, which was during the summer, they would take vacations to the Catskill Mountains. Uh, spending a lot of time at those several locations, resort locations that are up there during the 50s. Eleanor said that while her parents spent their time golfing, which is what Jerry Orbach and Kelly Bishop do in this movie, Mm -hmm. uh, she would be dancing all summer long. She would eventually compete in local dance competitions and was quite good at the mambo. Uh, She also talked about how she took part in these quote-unquote dirty dances that (laughs) took place in the basements and areas where the adults would not see them during this, these summers at the resorts. Uh, Eleanor would then begin, uh, or Eleanor would then later attend the University of Pennsylvania, graduating in 1958 with a degree in literature. She also worked as a dance instructor during her college years and later would become a novelist, publishing, I believe, two novels in the 1970s. At the end of the decade, Eleanor would try her hand at screenwriting. Her first script that was made was a movie called It's My Turn, a romantic dramedy starring Jill Clayburgh, Michael Douglas, and Charles Grodin. It seems that the film's production would be tumultuous for many reasons, but one thing that occurred that would uh, influence, uh, that would be influential for Eleanor was when the producers cut an erotic dance number that she had written in the script. She took that scene and it would become the nugget that would inspire her next screenplay. Eleanor would think back to her time at the Catskills competing in these dirty dancing competitions while her family was on vacation. She also gave the film's lead character the nickname that she had grown up with, which was Baby. What an awful nickname. <laughs> she said she had until she was 22. Uh and she kind of, and like kind of the character that Baby says in this movie, she's like, she didn't think anything of it at the time, which was like, cool, my nickname's Baby. It's just so bizarre to have your your father like walk you up to somebody and be like, this is baby. And then a complete stranger just starts calling you baby. Like, hey, baby. Yeah. Uh, 50s and 60s. What a different time. (laughs) Early 60s. What a different time. Um, So Eleanor took this idea to MGM and she pitched it. Uh, An executive there would then pair her with a producer, Linda Gottlieb, who had done mostly made-for-TV movies and television programs at this time. Gottlieb had a production deal with MGM, and she apparently had somewhat of a previous connection with Eleanor, I think at some point in their lives. I don't know how long or whatever. They went on double dates together with two guys, but they lost contact after that. Yeah. Uh, They didn't marry either two guys, apparently. It was just two guys they dated for a brief time. So when Eleanor and Linda would meet again this time, Eleanor began pitching her idea of the of this movie. But it was of these two sisters who go up to the Catskills with their family on a vacation. And Linda was like, I don't see much potential in this idea of like these two girls going up to the, like this resort or whatever in New York. Um, so so Linda began asking Eleanor about her life and her connection to the idea. And Eleanor did the whole like, my name was Baby. I, we did this all the time growing up in, in the summer. And so I started doing taking part in these in these dancing competitions. And I would do these things called dirty dancing competitions. And Linda was like, hold on. Stop. <laughs> That's the title of the movie. We'll figure out the story later. Um, 
And so Eleanor would eventually write the script and the duo would take it to the president of MGM, uh, Frank uh, Yablans. Uh, Yablans was responsible for combining MGM and United Artists together once MGM bought the company. Uh, Frank loved the script and agreed for MGM to do the movie. The next day, however, uh, after he agreed to the movie, he was fired from MGM and Gottlieb's projects were all halted and put into turnaround. Now, as we now know in the entertainment industry with mergers, around this time, MGM slash United Artists was losing a lot of money and they were bought by Ted Turner. So when Ted Turner bought the company, a new regime came in and a lot of these projects, which happens in, in Hollywood, as we're seeing right now with Warner Brothers and Discovery, is a lot of these projects that are in, projects that are in development all of a sudden get axed in some way. Mm-hmm. So it looked like Dirty Dancing might be dead in the water after being put into turnaround, but Gottlieb and, and Bergstein had one year to make the movie. Uh, once MGM decided not to do it, the rights reverted back to Gottlieb, giving her a year to find another home for this movie. If she was able to do so and not get into production before then, the rights would revert back to MGM for Dirty Dancing. Now, Gottlieb would then take the script around Hollywood and every major studio rejected it. Then every minor <laughs> studio rejected it. And then every small studio rejected it. Gottlieb said she received a total of 42 rejections Jeez. for Dirty Dancing. Gottlieb told LA Times in 1987 that she felt the studio saw it as a soft, small, and old-fashioned movie. She would later say that she believed they turned it down because it was a young woman's coming-of-age story in a time when Hollywood, Hollywood studios were run by men. Mm-hmm. She said that in, uh, it was Netflix. Netflix is kind of like docu-series of uh, the movies that made yeah. us, that they've been doing. It's a pretty good series. Mm-hmm. So a lot, of this, a lot of this stuff comes from that and several other like profiles of other kind of cast and crew and LA t- articles of the time. Um, so around this time, the home video market was beginning to boom in America in the 1980s. A company by the name of Vestron Video was making a lot of money distributing, distributing kind of like these films that, other companies weren't willing to put out yet. Uh, uh, most of the time they did schlocky B-movie horror films like Chopping Mall. Mm-hmm. Soon they'd want to get into producing their own films. And so they started a production department. And according to some of the heads in charge, they were all inexperienced people. Soon they began receiving countless rejected scripts from Hollywood. Basically all the movies that no one wanted to make were coming to them. Linda Gottlieb had read about this somewhere and she sent Dairy Dancing to them uh, the VP of production, Mitchell uh, Canold, would read the script for Dirty Dancing one weekend and love it. He said he related to it because he spent several summers in the Catskills with his family as well. Gottlieb was ecstatic that someone wanted to make this movie, but because this was essentially an indie film company, she had to cut the budget down. And they would cut it down to $4.5 million to make this movie, when the average cost of a studio film at this time was about $12 million. Some reports say 5.2 million, but you know, 700,000 here, 700,000 there. <laughs> it's, it's, it's whatever. Um, soon Gottlieb would then begin looking for a director for Dirty Dancing, and she would send the script to Emil Artelino, a documentary director whose works focused mainly on dance. He had directed several profiles for PBS on famous dancers and choreographers, receiving 17 Emmy nominations for his work in the process. Wow. Uh, yeah. 
1983, four years before Dirty Dancing, Emil would win an Oscar for Best Documentary Feature for He Makes Me Feel Like Dancing. He'd also directed several like made-for-TV movies or episodes, one of which was called Alice at the Palace, which starred Meryl Streep and Debbie Allen. Uh, and he also directed an episode of Shai Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater. Oh, nice! Did you ever watch that? Sh- oh, yeah. You ever watch that show? Yeah, I love that show. Big fan. L- big fan. I have. I got the cinephile just randomly got like a a bunch of VHS copies of those. Like like someone had the entire collection on VHS. Oh wow! I got two for myself. <laughs> uh, I can never watch them because I don't have a VHS player. Um, but Emil, this would be his first film, like narrative film he ever directed, and he actually read the script while he was doing jury duty in New York, apparently, uh, and loved the script so much, and he joined the project. Once he joined, they began casting the movie, and Emil was very adamant that the actors they hired had to be able to dance. He talked about how he didn't want to do what Flashdance or Footloose did when they used doubles for the dancing scenes for the film stars. Like, he wants you to know if Patrick Swayze is going to be doing a whole gymnastics routine. Yep. He wants you to know it's Patrick Swayze. Um, the casting would be whittled down to four names that, that, that would do screen tests for the film. They would do a variety of pairings to see to test their chemistry and also to kind of test their dance skills. The two actors they narrowed it down for Johnny Castle uh, were Patrick Swayze and a young 20, 20-year-old actor by the name of Billy Zane. <laughs> Billy Zane. Uh, the actresses for Frances Houseman, or Baby, were Jennifer Grey and Sarah Jessica Parker. Okay. Fun, funny enough, Jennifer Grey was dating Matthew Broderick, Broderick at the time, who would later marry Sarah Jessica Parker. Well, and, and this was this was what a year after Footloose. It was eighties. Uh, what was Footloose? Was it Footloose, Footloose was eighty four. Yeah, so three years after Footloose. Oh, okay. Well, it comes out three years after. So two years yeah, after. They're, two, they're so, auditioning two years. Sarah Jessica Parker's a supporting character in that she is she doesn't dance in it though not not a lot not a lot i think she just probably does like she's trying to do the dancing at she does she dances at the um at the honky tonk mm-hmm. that's when that's when chris penn gets up and yeah. beats a, gets a fight with the guy yeah. um and and it's a year after with jennifer gray it's a year after ferris bueller okay. so that's kind of her biggest role at this point in time nice. when talking about jennifer grave uh, Gottlieb and Bergstein said that she captured what they ha- had in mind for the character of Baby. They said that they fell in love with her for the role when she walked into the audition room and they heard her tell her father as she was walking in, wish me luck, daddy. Her dad is I was Oscar about to say, Joel, so Joel Gray, Joel Gray. took her to the, <laughs> so that's that? a power move. <laughs> Joel Gray, who starred as the master of ceremonies in Bob yeah, Fosse's talk about Cabaret. A, talk about a nepotism, baby. Just, I'm just going to have Joel Gray drop me off. At the, drop me off. Yeah. At, one, at one point afterwards, they talked about having Joel Gray, uh, I think, play one of the role like one of the fo- one of the like guest or something in the movie but it didn't pan out that they were like trying to get him in it and it didn't work um uh funny enough i think jill gray actually did a play with a very young patrick swayze who was in the ensemble in the 70s i believe is what i read when Ooh. he was like very young um swayze however was almost not one of the finalists for the roles on his resume and on his headshot, uh, which is where Bergstein uh, first saw Swayze and loved him. She was like, I love this guy. I want him to be in this movie. It specifically said no dancing. 
and they decided not to go after him. But once they found out from Emil, uh, Emil, the director, uh, that Swayze was a trained dancer, <laughs> like was a, a trained ballet dancer, uh, and his mother was the premier dance teacher in all of Texas, uh, they would try to sway him to be in the movie. Uh, they would find out the reason why he had no dancing on his resume was because he had a football injury in high school that badly damaged his knee. Hmm. Uh, but he said after reading the script, he agreed to try for the role because it was a, he realized it, w- it would be a good part uh, overall. So during the screen test for the final, the four finalists, they put Swayze and Gray together and everyone realized their chemistry was electric uh, and so they cast them in the lead roles. Also, apparently they said Billy Zane couldn't really dance. And that was one of the reasons why he did not get the role. Makes um, sense. But what many now know is that at the time, Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze did not like each other due to a previous experience working together on John Milius's film, Red Dawn. Swayze would talk with Grey after he found out that, that she, she basically told them like anyone but him. Uh, also the funny part is the studio kind of said this earlier on anyone but Jennifer Grey for the role it was like very much they didn't want Jennifer Grey I don't know why (laughs) Um, they just didn't want Jennifer Grey in it and then Jennifer Grey didn't want Swayze Swayze was told this and he kind of went in and like talked to Jennifer Grey and basically said hey let's settle our differences like try to make this movie work because it could be good for us they agreed to set aside their differences We'll see if they kept their word when we go to Onset Life. <laughs> uh, but now, with a cast in place, a director, and a budget, they would move to production. So let's talk about our favorite scenes in this movie. Thomas, do you have a favorite scene? I do love the kind of the intro to Dirty Dancing, like to to the Dirty Dancing, like the I, I carried a watermelon scene. Yes, <laughs> just a great line. Uh, just that line itself is perfect yeah i think it, it captures everything perfectly like yes. she's she's got the, we've been watching her kind of be bored with everything that's happening but you know she's never been like ah, i'm so bored here but then she just sees this guy coming by with all these watermelons she's like i want in with on whatever's yes, whatever going on is. up there yes I, I just need something other than conga lines <laughs> and, and then you get up there and it's like, you know, so much more than, than she's bargained for. And, and it's just yeah. like immediately overwhelmed. But um, yeah. but she's great. She's I I am <clears throat> probably most familiar with with her as far as like what I've watched her in the most is yeah. uh, Red Oaks, which I, which is a comedy series, <laughs> a comedy series on Amazon. That I love also good summer content. Shout out. It is. It is. Yeah, maybe shout I'll shout out, that yeah. out at the end of the episode. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, she's got great, great comedic chops and, and yeah. she's got some really, really great comedic beats in this in this movie. But that whole like fish out of water scene is just is just awesome. And and, yeah. and the I carried a watermelon line is is probably one of the best in the movie. Just, just I, I died. I died at that. Just line. Swayze just... is so cool. Like, yes. In that whole scene, Swayze is so cool and she is so awkward. And he's got her out on the dance floor trying to show her <laughs> the, like all the hip gyrations. And she's yes. just she's she's like a baby deer yeah she she's she, she's she has no like no rhythm mm-hmm. to her and she's so like stiff essentially with like her hips and everything and he's trying to teach her and the funny part too is like then when like the song's done she's kind of gotten better so he's just like walks off mm-hmm. and she's like oh okay but yeah, the carry <laughs> the carry the watermelon is just like it's it's the line and then it was the afterwards when he walks away and she's like i carried a watermelon 
like she realizes how stupid she sounds. It's perfect. But yeah, she's a character going into that. It's like she's a character who's like she is innocent in some way. She's seen as innocent by everyone around her. And I think she herself is trying to like get out of it in some way. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you you see her like you see the dining sequence when like when when Max Kellerman, not the Max Kellerman from ESPN, um, <laughs> but the Max Kellerman who owns the resort, who's like introducing her to like his son or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like and Jerry Orbach's kind of talking about, oh, she's going to the Peace Corps, she's going to go to this school. Like everything's kind of mapped out for her. And you wonder at that moment in time, is it that she's mapped this out for herself because she wants to do it? Or has this been mapped out by her father and Mm -hmm. like family basically. Yeah. And some would say like, is this a cliche storyline? Possibly. I don't know, (laughs) but it's relatable. I think it's relatable um, to many people. Um, But yeah. So, so again, it's the simple, like I'm going to go wander around the main house as she, when she, she leaves the, their, their kind of cabin they're staying at. And that's what has her wind up at this, like, a, like weird kind of staff quarters or whatever where they're doing the dirty dancing mm-hmm. um and, yeah, and it kind of yeah, it kind of sets up this i mean there's there's obviously the the main conflict of the film is between the staff and the and the yes. the, the clientele the guests or whatever but yes <clears throat> the 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 kind of first conflict is between the staff and her and that they yes. view her as the clientele and and it's this yeah. idea of like she is innocent but she's not ignorant you know they yes they're just immediately like you don't care about us you don't care yeah. about our life and and we yeah. we have established early on that she's she's kind of a, a, a kind of a bleeding heart person like yeah. he, her, her dad says you know she wants to change the world like and and so and her sister and her sister wants to decorate it is what yes, she says yes. wow lisa <laughs> um but yeah, we do kind of establish in, in that scene, we we kind of set up this like she obviously doesn't want anything to do with that, like boring yeah. upper crust, you sit around and, and play cards, but mm-hmm. they won't let her into this world because she is is from that world. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, with the class, the class idea with this, it's like there's a class system within the clientele and the. And the the dancers and the entertainment kind of people and the, and the other kind of workers there, but it's the weird like class system within the people who work at the resort. It's like the waiters are kind of the they're basically like they're the upper crust kids who are just working there for the summer because mm-hmm. you have that whole you have that whole kind of with Max Kellerman kind of giving the whole like as the waiters like, oh you guys are the best like make sure you show the girls a good time. Like basically saying like, give them the best summer of their lives. Like mm. pick out the one you want and like sleep with them or whatever. Like ha- show them a good time. So they want to keep coming back every summer or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're like met, they're like future med students and lawyers. And that's kind of like what separates them. And then you have like the entertainment dancers where he's like, you, you teach them to dance and you do the classes and nothing else. Don't yeah. do anything else with them. But you begin to see that kind of class struggle throughout all these different kind of levels as the movie continues. Um, 
but yes, the dance the dance party when they first show up is just kind of a perfect intro. And again, Swayze, like I said, Swayze is just so cool. And every, and and kind of his two little intros says the woman he walks up in the glasses, like talking to the waiters and Kellerman's like, "Don't you try to hook up with any girls this summer?" Basically, mm-hmm. um, and then you have the the dance party stuff, and him and Penny are just fantastic together in the dances they do. Um. And then we pretty we, we kind of hop into the storyline pretty quickly, like once they meet. It's kind of quick of how we go from like that, she meets Penny, and then it's like you find out what's going on with Penny in her life, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it happens pretty quickly. I forget how early the first training sequence, like the first training dance sequence is. Yeah. It's pretty early in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, um, they they make their they make their mind up pretty early on to take her yeah. on as kind of a, a protege. Yeah, and it's like, and again, the dancing montage is fantastic. It's like, and there's several dancing stuff, but that first one when she's like again like trying to dance down the like uh the uh, kind of like walkway or whatever mm-hmm. is, and you kind of see her get better as she goes, and like she's getting more, I guess, comfortable in her own skin a lot of the time uh and she's again she can't she's getting kind of sexier as the as it kind of goes on because swayze's kind of probably teaching her how to be more and more comfortable in her body essentially mm-hmm. um but what's another scene that you like in the movie the dance at the at the other hotel yeah with the because it's it's like so close to there but then it's got these little like yeah. moments like yeah. she does the little like cha-cha-cha thing to play yeah. out and does the, does the thumbs yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cause she can't, she's too afraid to do the lift. Yeah. And he's, and he's like coaching her through it. Like, Hey, like, it's like, you're doing good. Like, like wrong way. Mm-hmm. She goes the wrong way here or there. Uh, and then you kind of have that. Get the planting little, of the little old lady. There. Little old lady. We'll it's talk about that later. But yes, yeah, it's, it's just a plot twist in this movie. It's, that's, that's, <laughs> it's such a weird plot twist. It's such a weird plot. I'll tell this probably in not work, but like, it feels like such an unnecessary plot twist as we go. <laughs> It's like it's it's like it's necessary like to get to the like with the ending part of like oh yeah he didn't steal the wallet but I'm just like could we have done this any other way like mm-hmm. why is it like the little old couple is the one that steals the wallets or whatever it just felt like that's a separate movie entirely just like an old couple like as con artists essentially mm-hmm. stealing wallets that have resort and everything it's a it's a whole other plot line um but yeah, and I love talking about other actors. I love Jerry Orbach in this movie. Oh, absolutely. As her as her dad. He's amazing. Like, it's that scene at the lake when she kind of comes up to him. Yes. Such a good monologue. It's such a good monologue from her and him having to just kind of sit there and listen. That, and that like, is a, a, honestly, that's like a point that we as kids all wish we could have made to our parents at some point. Like that that line of just like I'm I'm sorry I let you down but but you let me down too like that is such yeah. a great way to get your point across and like yeah she's it's like she finally gets that moment to say that to him mm-hmm. and he has to like and the thing is he's he's been like I would say he's not been really been a bad father throughout he's just been a he's concerned and he's concerned, he's concerned. and he doesn't have his facts he's, straight I mean that's yeah you know, that's that's yeah. why it all with him it all kind of wraps up so well at the end because like as soon as he as soon as he's able to put all the the, the yeah. pieces together in his own mind he's like oh i've been wrong this whole time um yeah. you know it's 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 that it's that trope in a movie where you're just like oh if you guys would just communicate 
Okay, exactly. It would be fine, and it and it is yeah. like this. This proves the yeah. rule. It's like okay, once as soon as Robbie is like, hey, yeah, sorry about all that stuff. He's like, thanks for taking care yeah, of. Yeah, he's like, all right, pieces are together in my mind. Oh, he's, yeah, Johnny's not snatch a bad guy. That, <laughs> snatch that envelope back. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that is, and that's me a critique sometimes in movies, and maybe this. It's like there's a lot of times where like yeah they could easily just talk to each other mm-hmm. and like it's always like and it's always like someone's pride's getting hurt like when she says like when jennifer grace when uh, when baby says when they're walking up to go see penny after she finds out she's in the kitchen and the friend says oh she's she's pregnant and she's like oh what's he gonna do about it and so he's like what's he gonna do about it and i'm like he hates to show like it's not mine but he's so like he reads yeah. it as like well, it's it's that be, it's the class that class issue there. It's that one. It's that line of when when Jerry Arbuck comes in and he says, "Who is responsible for this woman?" and and yes. Johnny says, "Me." Yeah. And and if you're if you take that if you take what Jerry Arbuck is saying, which is what he is asking, is who knocked this girl up? Then the answer of me is like, "Oh, you you trash," you know, in that period. But if you're saying like who is like looking after this this woman and johnny steps up and says me it's like wow that's a really noble thing yeah. to say so it's just it, it is a complete misunderstanding and you see those gears turn in his head and when he goes up to him at the end of the movie and he's like i am a man who apologizes when i'm wrong and and you're not you're not a bad guy yeah and it's but yeah it's like that and, and orbach is, again like i said he just doesn't have the facts straight and he doesn't take time to like listen to see what the fact like like the explanation behind yeah, it all yeah yeah because you do have uh, that when baby's like well you just listen to me and he's like no i, I don't want to yeah, hear anything I'm, I'm more not, about this yeah and you know that that all ties into abortion being very taboo in this in this time yeah. period yeah because yeah i think it's, this is taking place in 1963 it's the summer of 63 as they talked about it's like a decade before roe v wade mm-hmm. and it's before it's really it's it's illegal in every state at this point in time yeah um and and that's the thing too with going with that kind of as this is a plot with the, with this abortion angle as a plot. I think people, I feel like people forget about a lot of the time with Dirty Dancing. It's just a it's just a heartfelt dancing <laughs> movie. Um, but the core, like the whole plot, is a is centers around an abortion mm-hmm. and what can happen in a world when it's not available and it's illegal. Yeah. Um, and it, I think at the time when it came out, it was it was like considered like the as someone said the gold standard of like portrayal of of this type of world, essentially. But yeah, at that point, it's like you, it's 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 so hard to it's it's illegal essentially, and it's it is a taboo situation for them, and they don't really know. I say baby specifically doesn't really know what what the world is like uh, and how I react to something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they handle it very nicely. And I think they even had like for, for when he's going to when when Orbach is going to to take to take care of her after the botched abortion, uh, which is very clear, and she's in, in, in agony. I think they had a doctor on set who was like a consultant to like make sure like this is exactly what would happen if this if this is the outcome of what happened after the the botched abortion. Mm-hmm. Um but so it's it's authentic and real for the era you didn't call an ambulance she said the hospital call the police she made me promise he didn't use no ether nothing i thought you said he was at real md the guy had a dirty knife and a folding table 
I could hear her screaming in the hallway, and I swear to God, Johnny, I tried to get in. I tried. It's all right. Johnny's here. I love I love the Love is Strange sequence. I think that sequence is like one of the probably more replayed motion. It's like after they've now fallen in love, and it's such a sexy and romantic and romantic, I guess, like sequence as well mm-hmm. with it. Um, I've heard that like it was just a rehearsal type thing for them at one point to get into the scene. I don't know how true that is, but either way, it works incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably again, probably one of the most replayed scenes from the movie. Um, do you have another scene for you? I mean, it's it, it's the end. It's there we go. It's <laughs> chills, you know. Yeah. It's just it all it all comes together. Now here's my question with it because I, I have two questions I want to ask. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on the line "Nobody puts baby in a corner"? Nobody puts baby. It's a little on the nose. <laughs> it, it's a little on it's the not, nose. It's not really a corner, but it's it's a pillar. But yes. But but like, he's he's saying what he needed to say, and yeah. um, you know, it cuts right to the heart of the movie. Nobody puts baby in a corner. Yeah. It, it is it is it's dealing with her like she's been the, the whole if you want to think literal it's like she's been put into well not as literal because she hasn't I mean but literal as in like she's been trapped essentially she is a trapped mm. person in this world and she's been cornered essentially by like what she expect is expected of her and and, and he t- like i get that the that the conflict here is between him and and, and jerry arbuck but um I do kind of feel bad for Kelly Bishop. Like Kelly Bishop has no idea what's going on. And yeah. then Swayze just walks up and is like so disgusted with the two of them. And she's like, yeah. Uh, okay. What did I do? I just gave what baby the seat. Like, yeah. And then she switches to that seat is the thing. Underutilized. 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 We'll talk about that. There's, there's, I don't know if there's a reason for it, but there's, there's some stuff in there with that. Mm. Um, but you know, the scene, yeah, the, the dance, the dancing at the end is the finale is great. It's, it's like, it's so good. It's it can now it's become so corny to look at because it's been like seen so many times. I think it, I think it transcends like, corniness. Oh, you do? Except I don't like the slow mo shot. I don't this, this oh, what, what, the when the, he jumps? the low angle slow mo off of the. You know what? It's it's a moment of like like lows and highs because I I don't like yeah I don't like the low angle slow-mo off of the stage but then i love that like when he pops up into frame in that in that immediate yeah. next shot. and he's doing the snaps yeah. going down the hall going down it yeah and, and all the all the staff coming in to back him up and then also yep. kind of usher her into their crowd it's great it's great stuff it's like you're one you're one of us now. and then again you gotta go with the lift the lift, the lift is just it's perfect it's it's incredible it's it's fantastic no one can do it as good as that <laughs> they can try but they can't um and yeah and then you have the, the the kind of emotional like uh jerry orbach coming up to him and apologizing and then and then she's hugging him at the end uh because of it um and then so then my next question is i i going with patrick swayze with this what do you consider is peak patrick swayze roadhouse see that's what okay interesting I've heard Roadhouse. I've heard Point Break. I think in terms of power, I would say Ghost. Mm. I think Ghost is like so, was That's, so popular probably, when it came yeah. out. For 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 a normie, it's probably it's probably <laughs> Ghost. But I know it's Roadhouse. Roadhouse is peak. Just to it's like, sell, yeah. just just 
just him, <laughs> him and Sam Elliott to to sell this world in which like bouncers are like roaming gunslingers, slingers, and, yeah. yeah. And, and the two, like no one else in that movie is selling that movie. Ben Gazzara and the two of them, <laughs> and no, no one else. Like that, it's the ultimate. Like, is it good or is it bad movie? And and, yeah. and there, there, there are three people giving fantastic performances in that movie, and then no one else is. <laughs> you don't think the 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 guitar player is? He is. You don't he think is. He? Not okay, not yeah. the acting, but the the music. Actually, I do really. You, yeah. Speaking of speaking of Kelly Bishop, um, what's her face from uh from Gilmore Girls as well, in the extended Gilmore Girl universe. Um, uh, I can't help she, you there. She's like the wait. She's the waitress in the. She's she's kind of like with the 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 guitar player in. Oh, let's let's see. Hold on. She's Luke's sister in in Gilmore Girls. <laughs> I I'm I'm doing my best here. Let's see. I'm looking at the Cat Kathleen Wilhoyt is her name. Yes. Yeah. This is a tangent to Roadhouse for a bit. Um, she's she's acting a lot of stuff. Yes. I'll give it I'll give it to Kathleen Wilhoyt and Jeff Healy, but but no one else. Sorry, Kelly Lynch no, fans. No, no, I was like Kelly Lynch. You're like not not. A, but I to to, art, to to go back to Ghost real quick. The Ghost he somehow they actually make Ghost like a five hundred million dollar movie. Like it's like it's mm-hmm. a massive hit. And I feel like no one really talks about that movie nowadays. Like it was five, like multiple Oscar nominations. I just think peak of Swayze's powers is is. Yeah, is I, I probably agree. But yeah, you can say like in terms of just like physique and kind of what he, how he like Persona. carries a movie. Then the Roadhouse, yeah. I would probably agree with you. But I think in terms of like peak powers, and some will argue Point Break, but I think. I don't know. I don't know if point he's the he's, he's like the splitting it one. with Keanu in Point Break. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's splitting it. Yeah, I think I think. Yeah. Anyway, that was our tangent on that. Any other scene you have? The opening's interesting. I didn't. I forgot there was an opening narration mm-hmm. to this movie, and that just kind of goes with our things we're talking about with the summer stuff. And it's, she's literally saying like, "It's the summer of '63. It's before Kennedy gets assassinated. It's before all this stuff." Like it was a different time then, and I'm kind of thinking to myself, who is she talking to? <laughs> well, talking I know, to I know us. it's film. It's I know it's film, and we're talking to us. But I always, it's it's always interesting to see how, like, who is the uh, you just the want, audience? You just want Stand by Me. You want that narrative device? Yeah, of him, yeah, of him writing exactly. It. Well, I was like watching the Sandlot last week, and it was the same thing. I was like, who is he talking to? Who is Smalls talking to at this age? I like, like to think. Just like, I like to think when I watch. Uh, I'll add this on to last week's episode. I like to think when I when I watch Sandlot that that's him announcing the baseball game you know in, in between at <laughs> bats he's like you know when i was a kid just, no, it's o- like, it's just like over e- the loudspeakers like, yeah you know it's the espn 30 for 30 that yeah. he's talking about his, his relationship with being the jet yeah, like that like would that bob costas or something he's doing these little specials <laughs> um but anyway um but yeah i think Again, to go with their chemistry, go back to this movie that we're talking about today, um, <laughs> with Swayze and Grit, their chemistry is just electric. Yep. Like, they are fantastic together. Um, and it's, 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 it begs the question, is it better to, like, not, not, the, like, sometimes you have, sometimes we have people who are, like, are actually married or in love, and their chemistry is terrible, and then you have people who just, like, do not get along, and the chemistry is just unbelievable well you know i can say that that she and and uh 
she and she and Matthew Broderick obviously had some real life chemistry, but I can't say that I watch it was Ferris Bueller time. and go like, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Great chemistry between those two electric the brother and sister. <laughs> I think they kept that very secret because they were playing brother and sister yeah. in the movie. They're like people would be weirded out by that. She They're does have good chemistry with Charlie Sheen in that movie. She does. She does have good. And there's supposed to be more of it, but there wasn't. Um, But no, but here they have it's it's. Like in that love is strange sequence is where I think it really kind of pops the most because that's mm-hmm. when their characters are finally in love and it just works. It works perfectly. It works perfectly. So on to onset life. So one of the biggest obstacles of the production uh, they had to overcome with the filming of a summer movie in the Catskills is that they couldn't shoot a movie in the summer and the Catskills mm-hmm. because those are vacation months. And it also seems a lot of the resorts they did from that era they were from that era, weren't really there anymore, they said. So production had to move down south where the summer weather lasts a little bit longer after the summer was over than the northeast. Uh, however, they could not find one location that works. They had to divide their time between two locations. The first location would be in Mountain Lake, Virginia, and the second location would be a former Boy Scouts camp <laughs> in Lake Lure, North Carolina. Wow, imagine uh, shooting a movie at a Boy Scout Boy camp. Scout camp. Yeah. <laughs> You know, um, there's no part coming up that I know you'll understand completely. Uh, Production began in Mountain Lake on September 5th, 1986. The scenes that were shot there were the dining scenes, the opening scene at the Kellerman Hotel Resort, the beach scenes, the family cabins, the kitchen scene when when Baby finds Penny crying, and the famous water lift scene. After this, they would move to North Carolina where the remaining scenes were filmed, most of which were the dancing scenes. But when it comes to the North Carolina stuff, as you know, Thomas... If you're shooting in the south in the summer, summer months, or even early fall months, you're going to have some bad weather. Yep. So have a thunderstorm like- every day around 2 p.m. <laughs> so it seems it rained a lot, um, but also the temperatures in Virginia, sorry, the Virginia scenes. In the Virginia, temperatures in Virginia were also incredibly hot at first, coming in at the beginning of September. Uh, apparently on the first day of filming, it was 105 degrees. Wow. With the temperature rising to 120 indoors due to all the lighting lighting and equipment they had. Kenny Ortega, the film's choreographer, said that at least 10 people passed out on the first day of shooting. Great. <laughs> Sounds like a great start. <laughs> Wonderful. Great time. Because like, wow, this is going to be a great production. Mm-hmm. Uh, unsurprisingly, tensions would begin to rise between Swayze and Gray on set. One of the big reasons was that Gray became upset with Swayze due to his constant tardiness uh, on set. They would eventually begin battling a lot, pretty much between takes all the time. One thing they had disagreements over was Gray's use of, Gray's use of a double for certain scenes that she felt were a little unsafe for her. Mm. One was when, which is somewhat, it might seem surprising. One was one was when Johnny is driving his car in like that wooded area or whatever. I think when they're going made to the lake or something but they're driving around mm-hmm. uh and it's kind of kind of kind of it was it was un uneven road and it's kind of hopping up and down gray was not in the car and they used a body double instead with the wig uh and but swayze was very adamant about doing all of his own work and not using a double for anything uh this would all come to a head when they did the log scene when johnny is teaching baby how to balance mm-hmm. uh because Swayze pushed it so much in the log scene with his jumping up and down, he would eventually fall off and injure his hurt knee. Oh, no. Yeah. 
Uh, he would have to visit the hospital and apparently had fluid drained from his knee due to the massive Ooh. amounts of swelling it was having. Ooh. I've also heard like it ended up like kind of um, like pushing like basically uh, missing production days because of it. Like it, it screwed up oh, the entire sure. production essentially. Probably had yeah, to get a photo double for him. Ironically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know how how long he was out, but at least a day. At least a day. Um, and I'm not sure how they finished the scene with all that. If he fell like that is my kind of thing. Um, by this time, the weather was getting colder as they were nearing October and the leaves were changing. Apparently set decorators had to spray paint autumn leaves green oh, no. to make it look like it was still summer. Uh, one of the last things they filmed in Virginia would be the swimming scene between Gray and Swayze in the lake. Since it was now getting closer to autumn and the temperatures were going down, the temperature in the lake was about 40 degrees when they shot it. Oof. <laughs> I think Gray said, like, if I was any bigger as an actor, I would never have done it. But I was young and wanted to, like, do a good job. Mm -hmm. Once moving to North Carolina, they began filming the dancing sequences. Now, there was one specific day when Swayze was becoming annoyed with Gray, and it's actually shown on film. It's one of the famous scenes where Gray is laughing when Swayze moves his hand down her body mm -hmm. at the beginning of the dance. Complete accident. Apparently it was like midnight. She, Gray was tired and hungry. According to that Netflix special, she was asking for a cheese platter. Um, and so when Swayze kept doing it, she just kept starting to giggle. And Swayze just keeps getting increasingly annoyed by her messing up every time. Um, it, and works. Just, and that, <laughs> it, really it works. It works. Yeah. <laughs> Um, to help calm the tension between Gray and Swayze during production, Emil Arlino, the director, showed them their screen test or reshowed them their screen test in hopes of inspiring them to get together and recapture that chemistry that made the, them cast them, like what made them mm -hmm. so great. Uh, Swayze and Gray saw it and tried to begin to work well together for the rest of production. It seems like that might have happened. It, it wasn't as bad as it was before, at least I know, but it, it helped in some way. Um, now it helped the production of the dance scenes were towards the end of the film because the film's music supervisor had not been able to obtain any of the music for the film. Yeah. That's problematic. Uh, yes. Eleanor Bergstein, uh, wrote very specific music cues in the script, which is one reason why everyone loved the script so much. Uh, Kenny Ortega said he had never seen a script that integrated music as well as the script for Dirty Dancing. So all the songs you hear, if it's the Otis Redding or whatever, those were all like written into her script. Mm -hmm. So as rehearsal started, they had no music. So Ortega, who is a choreographer who was trained by Gene Kelly, was having to choreograph the dance numbers without music. Wow. Um, that's, yeah. Gottlieb. No, that's miserable. Yeah. Uh, Gottlieb would soon fire the film's music supervisor because he brought nothing in for the music. Uh, and she would hire a man by the name of Jimmy Einer uh, to help find the film's music. Einer was a music producer and publisher who had worked with artists like Three Dog Night, Air Supply, Grand Funk Railroad, and John Lennon. He would soon be able to obtain all the songs that were in the script, plus more. Wow. One song that was added as they were trying to find music was Patrick Swayze's She's Like the Wind. You know, I, I thought about that the, this this past yeah. rewatch. Like, I always knew that he performed that song. But I was like, what a what a weird moment to be like, yo, we're going to put your song into this movie. It's going to so, be a yeah. very so here's emotional part. Yeah. Uh, 
She's like the wind. So apparently he had co-wrote the song for his earlier movie, Grand View USA, but it was not used in that film. I think he apparently also offered it to another movie called, I think, Young Bloods with Rob Lowe, and they didn't want to use it either. So it sounded like he was just like going around like saying, hey, here's the song, put it in, my, put it in the movie. <laughs> um, and so uh, Linda Gottlieb listened to it, and so did Emil Arlino, and they loved it. And they sent it off to uh, Jimmy Einer, who put it in the movie. Um, and then, so, but the, the song that was the film's last minute edition was the film's most famous song, I've Had a Time in My Life. Wow. Einer had reached out to a singer-songwriter by the name of Frank Privet, who was the lead singer of a New Jersey band called Frankie and the Knockouts. Uh, Einer asked him if he'd be, it was like a New York pop punk band, uh, I, which is very different than the song that we, that we hear in this yes. movie. Uh, Einer asked if he'd be interested in writing some songs for the film he was working on. Einer uh, um, Frank uh, Privet declined uh, after hearing the film's title because it sounded like a porno. <laughs> This is not the first time. That's the last time that will come up. Uh, Einer would keep asking him, telling Privet that it would change his life if he wrote songs for this movie. Uh, Privet would then write several songs. Another one would be Hungry Eyes, which was also used in the film. And he would co-write The Time of My Life as a song that would be used for the ending. Uh, as Kenny Ortega was chore uh, choreographing the film's final number, number, the initial plan was to possibly use a Lionel Richie song. But for some reason, they thought it would not work. So the week of the sequence's planned shooting, Ortega and his assistant, Miranda Garrison, began going through tapes of songs they had been sent as possibilities and that they had the rights to. The last song on the very last tape was the demo version of I've Had the Time of My Life. <laughs> and Ortega was like, he apparently stopped the tape and was just like, he looked at his assistant, he's like, okay, is this song good or are we just desperate because it's the last song on the last <laughs> tape and she's like let's play it again and see and apparently they loved it so they would rehearse for three days with that song and do the entire dance number with that song so when filming the sequence and you see Swayze mouth the lyrics mm -hmm. to the song at the end of the movie it's the demo version he's mouthing the lyrics I was, to. I was about to say when you said it was a last minute edition I was like well I know they had it at shooting because he's singing it <laughs> he's singing it um, Swayze would later say that this was his favorite version of the song um, when they did it. And you actually listen to it. I think it's on YouTube. I know at least by by uh, Frankie and the and the Frankie and the Knockouts. Um, this is also during this also during the sequence. Swayze would begin to re-injure his knee due to the stage jumping part. Oh no! Wow. Yeah. And then I and then I said I didn't even like it. Well, it, well, because well, when you watch, it's actually more interesting when you, if you do it and it's. It's more uh, impressive when it's not in slow-mo, weirdly enough, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, and apparently he went to Ortega because they kept doing it over and over again. He went to Ortega. He's like, I got one more in me. He's like, so you better tell them. <laughs> <laughs> like, because if not, I'm, I'm, I can't do it anymore. Uh, and he did it one last time. Uh, so filming would eventually wrap on October 27th, 1986. And they ended up being on time and on budget somehow. I don't know how. I don't know how that happened with everything. <laughs> um, and with that, the editing began. And that leads us to the aftermath of this film's tumultuous production. And guess what? 
it didn't get better. Um, so Vestron's VP production, Michael uh, or Mitchell Canold, uh, said that he liked the film's rough cut, but the rest of the company's executives were hesitant about the movie. They brought in a producer by the name of Aaron Russo, who had done films like The Rose with Bette Midler and Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Hmm. It seems Vestron needed someone to tell them they had a good movie or they had a bad movie because they didn't know. Uh, Canold and his team showed the executives and Russo the cut. Once it was over, Russo turned to them and said, and I quote, burn the negative and collect the insurance. Oh, my God. Somewhat relevant in terms of Warner Discovery news of late with Batgirl. Um, Vestron would give the film one last chance deciding to do a test screening for about 1,000 people. Canold said that once the film was over and it got to like the film's final sequence, the audience was cheering, stomping, and clapping for the film. And that's when Vestron decided, hey, let's get behind this film fully uh, and promote it. But the film would receive an R rating from the MPAA when they when they sent it in. Really? Uh, yeah. Apparently, there was a few more scenes, a little bit more language. There is the, when they have their dance scene before the sex scene, like the erotic kind of dance scene where they have together, mm-hmm. um, there was more to that. I think at one point, I've read there was she was she was nude in one part of it that was cut. I don't know how true that is. There is a deleted scene when they're more she's in a bra and more undressed than she was in the final number, and they cut that and they cut some language, and that brought down to a PG thirteen rating basically. Okay. Then that's when Vestron began like, okay, we'll promote the movie, and they got sponsorship from Clearacell, the acne cleaner, as a way yeah, to target yes. teenagers for the movie however once clear cell watched the film can you guess what they did or what they asked change the title nope uh get rid of the abortion abortion, cut the abortion plot wow yeah that's real easy to do (laughs) simple and screenwriter uh, yeah and screenwriter eleanor uh, bergstein said no basically saying if you cut that you have no movie yeah Literally, every, the, the the plot hinges on this abortion. Uh, so that resulted in Clearcell dropping out of sponsoring the movie. The, Vestron would set a release date for August 16th, 1987. Now, it's weird. I don't know what this is, but online, a lot of places say the movie actually premiered at Cannes Film Festival in May as a special screening, which it makes me wonder if the test screening they had was at Cannes Film Festival. Oh, wow. And I don't know. I would love to ask someone that knows about it because like, it's a, it's a, it gets a discrepancy. It's like that per, that's shown in May. And at that point, that's when they're just trying to decide if they should release it or not. Mm-hmm. But they release it in late August. August. So it makes me think like the test screening was at Cannes or around that time. Yeah. So who knows? Um, the film would premiere in August, as I said, at the very end of the summer, becoming a massive hit. It would gross $3.9 million in its opening weekend and then would just continue to climb and be a box office draw for 20 weeks. It would eventually gross $63 million domestically in its initial run against its $4.5 million budget, and it currently stands at $214 million worldwide just off box office. Um, it is seen by many as one of the best examples of a sleeper hit because people forget that this was an indie film that became one of the biggest movies in terms of pop culture of the 80s. 
Um, audiences loved it, but critics did not. Uh, some were mixed, while others downright disliked it. Uh, Pauline Kale said that it starts smart and ends dumb. <laughs> but she also said the dancing here brings out the sensual dreaminess of the songs. Dirty Dancing, what a great title, is such a bubble-headed retro version, vision of growing up in the 60s or any other time that, that you'd go out of the theater giggling, giggling happily. Roger Ebert, however, disliked the movie, giving it one, one out of four stars, saying the filmmakers rely so heavily on cliches, on stock characters in old situations, that it's, that, that it's as if they never really had any confidence in their performers. He did say that Jennifer Grey and Swayze were good and that it had a great title. The film, however, would end up being would end up having a life outside of the movie's initial run. The soundtrack would be a massive hit, selling 32 million copies worldwide and spending 18 weeks at number one on the Billboard charts. Uh, they'd actually have to release a second album in February of 1988 called More Dirty Dancing because of the mass the, because of the huge oldies music revival that the mu- movie actually started at this point. Uh, it would have four songs from the album that reached the top 50 on the Billboard charts with three songs reaching the top five. Um, Time of My Life would also win a Golden Globe, a Grammy, and an Oscar. But that wouldn't stop it. Once it hit the home video, it would become the first movie to sell 1 million VHS copies. And 10 years later, in 1997, the film was still selling 40,000 copies a month in VHSs. In 2005, it was selling a million DVD copies a year, at least. And by 2007, it sold over 10 million DVD copies. Its reputation continues to grow and has even been brought up more of late due to the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade, with many news outlets pointing to this movie as an example of what happens during a time when abortions are illegal. They're still available, just illegal. Um, uh, It received a television series in 1988, a prequel in 2004, a popular stage version, which has actually never been to Broadway, Hmm. um, a television remake in 2017, and Hmm. just recently... A sequel, a sequel to the original was announced with Jennifer Grey returning in the role of Francis Bacon. Not Havana Houseman. Nights. Not Havana Nights. Right. I, 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 uh, that's the prequel. Yeah. That's the, and I think Swayze is a dance instructor in that movie is what it oh, is. Weird. Um, but this is a sequel <clears throat> through Lionsgate that Jonathan Levine from 5050 and Warm Bodies is oh, doing, I believe. Yeah. Interesting. The night before. The night before. Um, I do want to note, I, I just looked it up real quick, because when you said Ebert didn't like it, I was like, I have a feeling Siskel did, because he liked dance. He was a big dance guy. <laughs> and Sis- Siskel said, here's a familiar youth film that is carried on the slim shoulders of its female star, newcomer Jennifer Grey. And he closes the yeah. review by saying, their romance has a few twists and turns, and more importantly, some genuine emotion. But remember the name Jennifer Grey? She's an actress to watch. Three stars. Okay. I love it. That's that's the big difference between Eber and Siskel is that Siskel loves dance. He loves some dance. <laughs> but everyone seemed to like Jennifer Grey. Even people that didn't like the movie, they commented how good Jennifer Grey was mm-hmm. in the film. So speaking of that, what worked in this movie for you, Thomas? Chemistry. Chemistry is amazing. Chemistry between the two of them. I mean, honestly, supporting cast. It's a really... Yep for someone who just went on a rant about how none of the supporting cast in roadhouse is any good um you know obviously <laughs> obviously jerry arbach is great but i mean even like yeah. you know um his the guy who plays his cousin is a lot of fun yeah yeah uh, and then cynthia rhodes is great for you she's know, great it's penny being it's someone penny, yeah. who really came on like as a dancer 
Um, yep. she 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 plays her role really well, and I I can't tell if Jane Brucker as Lisa is good in this or not, or if it's just a poorly written character. But it's, it's yep. a little it's a little much. They give her character yep. like it's a fairly grounded film, and she is just so ridiculously over the top. Yeah, but but overall, like very solid supporting cast for the film. Um, music, great soundtrack. Great soundtrack. Yep right up there with like you know gotta love an 80s soundtrack looking back on the 60s it's right up there with like the big <laughs> chill soundtrack yep bay boomers have good soundtracks you know it's like i gotta say that's the one they got yeah um really really f- overall you know for a little for a little indie film really well edited you know i yeah. think for the most part i really enjoy i, I like the 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 I, I like the final scene the way it goes for the most part other than that jump mm-hmm. i i really enjoy the the montages i think are, are all cut together really well no i agree uh who's, who's this editor peter peter c frank also edited the verdict which is also a really good movie of this yeah, period sure. the courtroom drama with paul paul newman yeah not a lot though he didn't edit a lot um and also i mean it has good summer vibes mm-hmm. like for a movie being shoot shot in september and october it captures summer incredibly well visually but also this idea of what we're talking about in a summer movie you have this kind of passage of time with them with it's this coming of age story with jennifer gray essentially mm-hmm. with baby growing up in some way by seeing a new perspective of the world in this resort and seeing almost the different levels within this resort of the different class levels that you have mm-hmm. um but it's a very eye-opening summer for her and again it it harkens back to that opening narration of like, this is the last summer of innocence. And when I become an adult, essentially, and this is not just for me, but also when America, it's the last summer for America, essentially, Mm -hmm. uh, before they change completely. Um, so yeah. Now, did anything not work about this movie, Thomas? Uh, it's funny. You should ask. I think this is a good movie overall. Uh-huh. I think this yeah. might be one of the worst executed period pieces I think I've ever seen. Interesting. I don't think the costumes look like the 60s. I don't think the hair looks like the 60s. The Half yeah. the music is 80s and it's diegetic music. That's I mean, weird. so, yeah. you know, the difference. So for anyone who doesn't know, diegetic sound versus non-diegetic sound is is what the characters in the movie are hearing you know sometimes there's non-diegetic sound and it's like we're hearing it a lot of times soundtrack is non-diegetic we're hearing this song that's been added underneath but the characters aren't listening to it currently mm-hmm. but i mean even mm-hmm. like like we were saying the time of my life that is not a that is an 80s no, it's not. song that's and they keep song. acting yeah. in that scene like you know they've got this the part where kellerman like goes up to the band leader and it's like you guys have this on sheet music and and swayze's <laughs> like singing it and i'm like this is the most 80s song that there is but like (laughs) several of her outfits like the the when when she's dancing on the bridge she's got that like like jean shorts and like that kind of like pink tank top nobody wore that in the 60s (laughs) it's not a young girl not a young girl in 60 63 i agree with you on that yes swayze's hair is not 60s her hair is not 60s it's it's like you know they said like oh we need like dancing to be taboo and we need abortion to be taboo let's let's say it's 1963 and then it's like <laughs> that and then like swayze's car is is the, yeah. the commitment to it and that's it 
and he just like not like breaks that window <laughs> just because he, he lost his keys. No, I agree. I was talking when I'm talking about. I think it captures coming of age stuff well. I'm not talking about the period, but yes, I understand that with like the period of like yeah, it doesn't feel. It feels very 80s. Yes, both in its style and its uh, yeah yeah and its music a lot of time. And the music is it's fair. The music is kind of all over. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely the some place. 60s like Motown and and rock in in there. Yeah, but like you know. Then you get "She's Like the Wind" at the big emotional uh, mark. It's and a you're weird. Like, this yeah. is an '80s song. It's a it's a hodgepodge. It's a hodgepodge. I agree with you on that. Um, I I think Swayze's accent's very odd. Mm. His accent's not consistent. The Texas, you know what I mean, the Texas slips out for sure. Yeah, and then well, then it becomes like he tries to be like because he's because I think Ebert said this in the review, but like, is he Italian? Is he Irish? He's <laughs> technically supposed to be Irish. Um but it's just it tries to get northeastern accent spots where it's like almost like he's from like jersey or new york Mm -hmm. or something but then it like slips in this wazy it just it's a little odd um i really don't like the old people robbing it just feels it feels (laughs) so you've already got like the villain of the you know the woman who's been (laughs) buying him as a prostitute Um, yes and so it's like she she set him up like she set up the missing wallet like that would be enough you know yeah. to be like she's she's lying to yeah, get back she's at lying him. and but yeah. then for it to be like oh these old people are also like notorious con men is it's a really weird note during a like very emotional part of of the movie and she, and things like 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 a, a baby just like nails it right out of the gate she's like no but we were there that night and so were they they had to have done it yeah, and you're and like what scooby-doo she spilled her purse and she had wallets in her purse yeah what scooby-doo stuff is this <laughs> like it was it, yeah i forgot that yeah when she spills it's like yeah it's a big it's a big ask it's a big it's a big it's a big ask for the audience and then it just like and then like at the end it's like oh yeah you're right they did steal the wallets but i still got fired and you're like what what are we doing here <laughs> Like it'd probably be better if like he just they just say that he stole the wallet. He says he didn't. There's no proof of it, but they still fire him, and that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. And 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 because the moment is like she's like he couldn't have stolen the wallet because he was with me that night, and that's all you need. You don't the 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 old people stealing is just a separate thing completely. Um, now how do you feel? I has I put this in. How do you feel about the narration? Because it sets up the stuff at the beginning, which I, I like, but like it never comes back. Yeah, it just goes away. It just goes away. It's like you have the opening and that's it. I mean, you know, if they didn't have the narration, how else would we know it was 1963 in the film? You know, that's. <laughs> so you kind of need it there, right? Yeah. yeah no. They don't really make an effort through the rest of it. No so. one talks about Kennedy ever in the whole movie, except <laughs> that, except that part. And the dancing is like even the dance. I mean, because that that dancing did exist. I'm not I'm not gonna be uh, um, naive with that because that 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 underground dance of all the time. But yeah, it does feel very like it feels 80, 80s. I agree with you on that. Anything else that didn't work? Nope. I think that's it. Okay. All right. Alternate universe cast. Speaking of uh, Vivian Pressman is the character I believe who's the the lady who's basically prostituting. Uh, uh patrick swayze the entire movie so kelly bishop who plays mrs houseman was initially cast to play that role oh. uh the actress who was cast as miss houseman mrs houseman lynn lipton 
became sick during the first week of shooting and they were forced to recast. So they moved Bishop up to Mrs. Houseman and the film's assistant choreographer, Miranda Garrison, played Vivian Pressman, oh, nice. the the actor the, the character who is prostituting uh johnny castle uh there's apparently one shot in the opening where you can see lynn lipton in the car instead of kelly bishop when they're driving up to the resort because apparently lynn lipton has like m- like a, a blonde hair like more blonde hair hmm. than her so for ha- for baby houseman for francis houseman the characters that are the actresses that had uh i said sarah jessica parker earlier was in the final four I think Sharon Stone auditioned for the role as well. I know the studio wanted P as Adora as the character, which was she did like sexploitation type movies, I believe. Uh, and Winona Ryder was another one they actually suggested for oh. the role of Baby Houseman. Uh, for Johnny Castle, I said Billy Zane earlier. I think someone said that Billy Zane would be the next Marlon Brando is why I wanted to go with See him. That? He looks like him. That's about it. Adrian Zemed was another big one. And if you don't know who Adrian Zemed is, I understand. Uh, he's one of the leads in Grease 2, is what it was. You're right. I, I wouldn't know. He's, he's the lead T-Bird Christopher in McDonald, Grease right? 2. He's in Grease 2. Christopher McDonald is in Grease 2. And is good in Grease 2. I like Christopher McDonald. We'll save my Grease 2 conversation for a different episode. Um, Adrian Zemed, Billy Zane. Benicio Del Toro was a big Ooh. favorite at one point. Ooh love that <laughs> and then val kilmer was a big favorite at one point I, you know 80s allegedly 80s, val, alle- al- 80s, yeah. 80s val 80s swayze have a lot of have very similar vibes val, <laughs> i think val's a, a, a much better actor no offense to swayze but uh i think i think kilmer's a better actor i think swayze might have more star power I don't. Hmm. I don't know. There's some, some like just movie star, star quality. I don't know. At that period, it's 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 a toss up. Uh, but yeah, Kilmer. I think I I allegedly heard they offered to Kilmer, but he turned it down. I don't know how true that is. But I know Benicia del Toro was a big favorite. Big <clears throat> I favorite. love that. Big fan. Yeah. Of, big fan of of heartthrob Benicio era. Yeah. Or late eighties. Like yeah. like. I haven't been doing Literally, that much. He, you hold up a picture of him late eighties and Brad Pitt. They're like identical. <laughs> I haven't seen that. It's true. Uh, 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 film facts. So the films, the final version of the film's Oscar winning song took only an hour to complete once they recorded it. Uh, Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers and Jennifer Warrens were not the first choices for the song. Donna Summer was the first one offered the song. Wow. Uh, Try to get her another Oscar song under, under her belt. Yeah. But she turned it down because she didn't like the title of the movie. <laughs> Um, they asked uh, Daryl Hall from Hall and & Oates uh, and Kim Carms, and they both turned it down. Uh, Einer kept going to bid medley, Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers, but he turned it down for two we- two months almost, saying he didn't want to do a song for a possible flop of a movie, <laughs> and he thought the title of Dirty Dancing was a bad porno name. Yep. Second time someone said it that. Checks out. I wonder if that's just like, if that's real, uh, or people, multiple thought that. <laughs> Um, because it was Linda Gottlieb's movie, she had all the box office points for the film. So Vest- Vesteron Pictures did not receive any money from the film's profit and would actually file bankruptcy a few years wow. later and seek to c- cease to exist. Gottlieb, however, gave points to Eleanor Bergstein, 
Swayze, Jennifer Grey, Kenny Ortega. I think the production manager, like several cast and crew members, nice. got box office points for this. For this, and it's funny that Netflix thing—you tell the guys who were at Vestron were just like really pissed. <laughs> They're just like, "Yeah, screw them." Uh, leading up to the film's 10th anniversary in 1997, Conan O'Brien led a campaign on his late-night talk show, begging the studio to re-release the film for its 10th anniversary. After months of on-air skits regarding the film, the studio who owned it at the time agreed to re-release it all because of Conan O'Brien and their uh, their attempts on the late night show. Um, even Variety said, I think the Variety headline was like, late night comedian's obsession gets dirty picture on screen <laughs> or something is what it was. I think the final one, he threatened to, tr the, to fire his trombone player if they didn't re-release the movie. Um, so yeah, last film fact, around 2008, the lake in which Swayze and Gray do the famous lift scene actually ran dry, oh. turning into a meta, the, like the water lift scene, mm -hmm. uh, turn, uh, ran dry, turning into a, a meadow, basically. When the lake ran dry, they actually found remains of a human body at the bottom of it. It was the body of a man named Samuel Fielder who had fell in the lake in 1921 and drowned at the age of 37 while canoeing with his friends. Wow. So he was under there so while they were shooting? They were, yeah, under there while they were shooting that movie. Um, recently, it was, cause it, so it ran dry in 2008. It would actually stay dry until 2020 until finally Virginia had a rainfall all of a sudden and the lakes actually refilled back up after <laughs> over a decade of it being bone dry. I think you actually, at, when it was still dry, they actually still had the cinder blocks where they stood to shoot the scene uh, in the water. I, 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 I do have, I have one, one trivia. Okay. Uh, two, two people involved in this film became successful directors after this. I'm sure you know one of them. But do you know the uh, do you know the second who's involved? Not you mean not actor, right? You mean behind the camera? Well, Kenny, Kenny Ortega is one Kenny of them, Ortega right? Is one, yeah. OK. In front of the camera. I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, Lonnie Price, who plays uh, Neil Kellerman, the one who's kind of like courting uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. baby. It was a very successful Broadway director. Real tight with Sondheim wow he directed a bunch i think he won an emmy for doing the revival of sweeney todd oh man yeah he did oh well he was in merrily merrily roll along the original production of it in 81 wow yeah he did direct a lot or has directed a lot sweeney todd company sondheim birthday concert sunset boulevard the musical version wow he did okay well thank you i did not know that yeah, good for him. Goes good from playing him, a yeah. little shit in this movie to uh... <laughs> I was like, he's such a douche <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> um, okay. Uh awards. The Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actual limit scenes that kills it. Who do you have for this? Who who are we counting as limited? Got like Jack Weston in there. Um he I would say he's limited. Okay. You don't want Wayne you don't want Wayne Knight? <laughs> Wayne Knight in there as the as as the as the comedian at Catskills now is it Neil Jones who's who's the cousin? I think he is the cousin. 
Kostecki. It means yeah. let's see. I mean, I'd like to give it to Kelly Bishop because I love Kelly Bishop, but like she she has so little to do in this movie. I don't even think I could give. She doesn't her really have like. Yeah, let's see. Billy is. Yeah, it's Neil Jones. Um, and I think Pen- Penny has more as too much as well. Yeah. So you're saying your people are Jack Weston. Does Lonnie Price count as as you know Beatrice Strait? Let's get. I give it to Lonnie Price. I think. I think. I think he succeeds in what he's trying to he do. Absolutely. Yes. He's. He's yeah, infuriating. That scene when he's like at the when he's and he's like let's go somewhere quiet and they're by the river and mm-hmm. he's like basically just like trying to get with her and like talking like, about Robbie or whatever. Robbie comes by and he's like I'm I'm sorry you had to see that baby. Yeah. Or or it's it's like yeah he he I I took that I, t- I stole his girl away from him or whatever I was like why are you bragging about this to <laughs> to her this is not helping you uh yeah so let's go with Lonnie Price let's go with Lonnie Price for a Beatrice Strait Award I like that all right maybe my parents are looking for me baby don't worry if they think you're with me they'll be the happiest parents of Kellermans <laughs> I have to say it I'm known as the catch of the county. I'm sure you are. But last week, I took a girl away from Jamie, the lifeguard. Mm -hmm. And he said to her right in front of me, what does he have that I don't have? And she said, two hotels. (laughs) All right, the Annie Potts X Factor Award, actor or actress who's the most memorable in a supporting role. It's got to be Jerry Orbach, right? It it has to be, yeah. What a guy. He's amazing. Dirty dancing. OG Law and Order. Yeah. Beauty and the Beast. beast. Yeah, he's being the beast. Absolute, absolute legend. Also, I mean, a big Broadway star. He was, I think he was on the original um, 42nd Street production Mm. in the 80s. So like Matt, like just so many different like ways to like fall, like your your kind of entry point for Jerry Orbach is the thing. Mm -hmm. And just great scenes overall. It's like, it's the the one in the gazebo. It's, it's him like kind of just like trusting uh baby and the and it's the it's like when they're at golfing and he's like doesn't tell the mother what's going on mm-hmm. he's like oh don't worry about it and then just getting up in the middle of the night and like going and performing um uh, helping her out but then with for penny but then also it's it's a throwaway line but penny says that he came back and checked on her Mm-hmm. later yeah. he, he was constantly yeah, coming back and checking like, on her even it's yeah that's why even when baby like knows that he kind of looks down on that group like you yeah. everyone's still like what a great guy like yeah. he's he's awesome so yeah great character great performance was that what my money paid for daddy i'm sorry i never meant to lie to you you're not the person i thought you were baby i'm not sure who you are but I don't want you to have anything to do with those people again. But can I just explain? Nothing. That? You'd have nothing to do with any of them ever again. I won't tell your mother about this. Right now I'm going to bed. And take that stuff off your face before your mother sees you. All right, the Gene Hackman MVP award. Person who carries the movie, director, actor, writer, producer. Could be any uh, choreographer. I don't know. I think we're going to break tradition here. I think it's got to be them together. Like, it's like. The chemistry, <laughs> like you can't give it to one or the other. It is, it's only them I agree. together. I agree. I agree. I because I was like, is it Elner Bergstein for the writing? But also, I like the script's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Um, uh, the choreography's fine. Not saying it's bad, but it works. It works for the movie. Um, but I think the chemistry is what carries this film 
through and through like because uh, the, again the script is good but it's again it's very it's it's 80s it does it deals with some interesting stuff for the time period which is nice but I, I think just without Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey together like the like picture Jennifer Grey and Billy Zane together mm. I've seen this the screen test of him dancing it would not have been as good I'm just telling you that right now like it's just no offense to Billy Zane it, it, it it's them two together mm. so I agree they fired you anyway because of me and if I leave quietly, I'll get my summer bonus. So I did it for nothing. I hurt my family. You lost your job anyway. I did it for nothing. No, no, not for nothing, baby. Nobody has ever done anything like that for me before. You were right, Johnny. You can't win no matter what you do. You listen to me. I don't want to hear that from you. You can. I used to think so. All right. Final questions. If this was remade today, who would you cast? Okay. Um, she's probably a little old to successfully be baby, but you know, age is age is relative in film. But uh, I think yeah. I think it's Zendaya. Yeah, I think she'd be good, and I think too she's probably I mean she's probably the same age Jennifer Grey was when she made it, or give or take a few years, because Zendaya's not that old i think jennifer gray was in like mid-20s when she did it and, yeah, and you're going with also going with johnny castle it's like swayze was 34 when he made this movie so like age is out the window right now um okay i like that i think that works she's got she's got musical chops we know this she's good in gray showman she can dance okay now is this modern day or is this 63 we're gonna make it 63 and we're gonna make it actually work Okay, you're you're adding some some interesting uh, layers to this. Uh, this with, is with Zendaya, yeah. I will I will say. Um, I don't know. We could set it modern day. I mean, still can't get abortions anymore. Um, <laughs> I went there. <laughs> oh God. I, let's let's do modern day. I okay. just I want to see I want to see what modern day would be like. Okay. Let's see what modern day would be like. All right, modern day. Um, Zendaya works. Cause you can still, it can still be, you can still follow the same stuff. Yeah. Like it happens. Welcome. So Zendaya, Zendaya for, um, for baby. What about Johnny? I'm pretty sure he can dance. Uh, but Taryn Edgerton. <laughs> Taryn Edgerton. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he can dance. He's, he tried to, I don't know if he did a little bit in, uh, there's some choreography in Rocket, in Rocket Man. Man. Yeah. There's Rocket Man. Yeah. He's got, he's got that kind of, he's got the like, I look like I'm from the wrong side of the tracks, but I can also pull off a musical vibe that Swayze had, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I don't think Tom Holland can pull off the wrong no. side of the tracks. No. If you're doing you Tom Holland, Holland and Zendaya, you have to switch. You have to gender swap it, which honestly <laughs> I I would Not watch. Not terrible. I would watch. Not terrible. Tom Holland shows Not up terrible. at camp and Zendaya is dirty dancing with all these people. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Uh, but let's not do. Let's. Not, I think there's enough boy coming of age stories. Let's st- let's yeah. stick with the the girl coming of age story. Um, I like I like that. I like that. Do you have Do you have a, Do you have a Jerry Orbach? Do you have a Jake Jake House? I gotta do some. Wait, let me do some math in my head for ages. Okay, I don't want to. I don't want to like make this guy. Well, I mean, maybe we can age him up, and maybe he won't be offended. Um. Let me do some math in my head. All right, Zendaya was born when 
Okay, she was born in 1996. 1973 would have been 23 when she was born. Okay, sure. Sterling K. Brown. Okay. No, that would make sense. He 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 has kids in This Is Us. They're in high school. Yeah, yeah. Just got like an insane amount of gravitas. Just like a super likable guy. He would be good. He would be good as Jerome. He that would be a good. That's a good. That's a good cast. That's a good. That's a good pick. You know I love Sterling K. Brown. Yeah. Sterling K. Brown's amazing. I'm trying to get him I like more that work. Pick. The show's done. It's done, right? This is the last season. It's done. It's done. It was last season. Yeah, God, it was season. I, yes. That was like several years ago. I was just like, when that show is done, that guy better get every role. Every role possible. he wants. Yeah. I mean, he's been getting roles. I mean, he was like, he was in the Marvelous Mrs. Maid's line now because he's like, hey, I like that show. I want to be in it. And he was in it. Um, Aaron forgets in Black Panther. Hey, I want to see him in Haunt for Jesus, Save Yourself. Mm-hmm. It's coming out this year. Yeah. Him and him and uh, Regina Hall. Um, both fantastic. Both fantastic. Um, I like that. I like that cast. Um, all right. Does this film fit with any other genres besides the summer movie genre? Like we said, coming of age. Coming of age. Uh, dance movies dance movies yeah it's not a musical yeah. but um it is a it is a dance it's a, movie. it's like but it's like mtv era musical that yeah. was the thing like flash dance is considered a musical but there's no yeah. singing in that so it's like it's a flash it's an mtv Footloose. musical is considered a musical no, no singing in that. yeah there were new songs for this movie mm-hmm. so it's a it's a it's a dance musical is what yeah. i would say yeah that's the same footloose is like an original soundtrack yeah. and everybody's like oh they sing those songs right it's like no they do no, on stage, no, on stage version. But. Yeah, I mean, technically, Swayze does mouth the lyrics. That's, to... that's, that's true. <laughs> and he does sing. He does sing a song yes, in the movie. That is also true. <laughs> yeah, I think those 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 fit perfectly. Those are those are correct. Um, and how does this film fit with the summer genre? You know, I think it's a. I think it's one of the quintessential ones. It's yeah. It's got a great summer vibe to it. It's a little bit older then you know sandlot and and stand by me for sure it it definitely focuses on more of the sexual awakening um but yeah i think it's got i think it really captures that like vibe of the summer where it's like this one week was the most formative part of my my childhood you know it was like all it took was one week in the summer wouldn't be possible during the school yeah. year because you're sitting you're stuck in class most of the time you wouldn't be able to have all these adventures yeah but in the summer when you have your whole day free for for things yeah anything can happen in a week or three weeks or yeah or however, it's however a long they're there i don't know i think it's three weeks they're here wow. in this movie remember when people weeks, used yeah. to summer i thought the same thing you watch all these the movies and it's thing. like what you just well and it's the same I, I always think about that when i watch what about bob it's like he's like, yeah, I'm just shutting down practice for like two months. I'm like, Three what months. about your receptionist? Yeah. <laughs> what about yeah. other people? I'm like, sure, There's you work. make enough money yeah. to take the time off, but like, yeah. And also, like, you're you're he's a psychiatrist in that movie, right? Like, yeah. you're just basically letting your patients out, like, yo, just deal with it for two yeah. months. Yeah. And then get really so annoyed I, I, when they call you. Yeah. I mean, once it, again, he's the bad Bob, guy of that movie. Yeah, I was like, is Bob in the wrong in this movie? No. I don't know. I don't know. Leo is. He needs. 100 the villain of that film <laughs> um yeah again you have you have the autobiographical nature that we talked about like eleanor bergstein's script is so entrenched with facts from her life and, and things from her life that it's it's very much a part of that kind of coming of age again i think this month we 
on accident, but also it's it's a lot of this genre is this way, but it, it is this kind of coming of age summer movie. It's a very almost specific subgenre of the coming of age genre. Um, and so, yeah, it all kind of hits those, those notes essentially pretty well. Um, all right. Final questions of the summer genre. What other movies do you want to shout out that we haven't talked about this month that you think deserve a little love or TV shows as well? I know you said red Oaks, red Oaks. Fantastic. Watch. If you, I, I, I've recommended this film to a lot or this show to a lot of people, but if you like the summer vibes, I think red Oaks manages to capture it for three seasons, which is kind of insane. Well, really two seasons. And then in the third season, they kind of give up on the summer thing, but I, yeah, I never watched the third season. I never watched, watched the, the first third season. Right? It's fantastic. I did. I'll watch it. Um, I'll watch it for you. But yeah, it's like, and and stick with it. The first episode is trying to be like a little too Caddyshack. I think it it, it doesn't that doesn't yeah. that doesn't stick around. So stick with it, even if you're like, yeah. oh, that's a little bit too much like nudity for me. Yeah, stick it through. But but yeah, great great directors in it yeah. in it too. Hal Hartley, Amy Heckerling, David Gordon Green. Soderbergh produced it. Gregor Rocky is directs an episode, mm-hmm. I think, at least. Yeah, great. Like honestly, a lot of a lot of a lot of really good Amazon series, but that's that's been my favorite yeah. that Amazon has done. So if you like the summer vibes and you want to see it translated into a TV show, I think they do it the best. Like I mentioned, what about Bob? Great mm-hmm. summer movie. <laughs> really, really <laughs> fun. That's one that if you haven't revisited it since you were a kid, go back to it. Because it's Frank Oz yeah. and it is like a lot more twisted than you than you probably understood when you were a child. Yeah. And Dreyfus, again, Dreyfus being the king of the summer, as we talked about the first episode of the month, Dreyfus is the king of the summer here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Speaking of that, go watch Jaws. I mean, it's it's quintessential. Um, quickly, I'll sh- do the right thing as one to watch. Mm-hmm. It's like that's a little different summer movie, but it's it's a fantastic captures the heat of the uh, captures the, like the atmosphere of what it's like to be in the summer. I assume probably in the city. In the in the Heights is also summer too, um, which fit into this too. Um, I'll show an older one. I would shout. That's kind of a, it's a weird movie. But a movie called The Swimmer with Burt Lancaster. Have you seen that movie? I've not. I've had it recommended to me so many times. It's worth watching. It's very, it's weird. It's a weird movie. Basically, the premise is like he's, it's in Connecticut, but he's going to get to his house by swimming from pool to pool of his neighbors, basically. So he's just going to swim from one pool to the next, the next, and keep going, going until he gets to his house. But each kind of place he stops at, he, he, the conversations he has with the neighbors start to peel back and for like peel back the onion of his character, and you start finding out more and more about who Burt Lancaster is and the relationships he's had and kind of his life. It's a fantastic movie. Frank Perry directed it, I think, written by his wife Eleanor Perry definitely worth checking out that's it on the on the recommends i think um and then finally what what did you learn about summer movies this month thomas you you know i i I don't know that i would have put together that thing about the kind of the way that they stretch time and you know you know that's that's something that's always when you when you talk about film and the medium of film and how it stands differently than than other art forms that is one Mm -hmm. of the 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 distinctive things of film is the ability to to, to either sh- stretch time or condense time and, and editing goes into that and everything but from a from a storytelling point of view and from an editing point of view all of these films have come together 
to really try and create that timeless feeling of summer when you're a kid. And I think all the ones that we picked were able to pull it off. And, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of them are, I would say that um, Dirty Dancing is kind of the, the least listless of all these films or meandering, yep. but and not in a bad way. That's just kind of yeah. how summer is but it, even it still is kind of like you know we all we really have to do is learn this dance like it's not we're not barreling towards a plot point here no. um and so that's yeah that that that's really what i kind of came away with was like the time just functions differently in the summer yeah. and and all yeah. everyone who made all these movies was able to capture that so well mm-hmm. and even with the with the dance is like that's like the midpoint like the, they they learn the dance and the, the dance happens like midpoint in the movie mm-hmm. like at the back half it's just like them living the, their lives in the summer but also getting kind of you're also getting the essence of like their characters it's like i know johnny kind of goes into how like this is like my peak time of the year i'm making so much money and then i'm just struggling the rest of the year mm-hmm. so like this is like just a big important part for him and yeah, you, and I think the, adding those montages they have add to that kind of passage of time in a way and how it's stretched. Now you're spending, she's spending day after day learning this dance, getting better, but also developing uh, a romance in the process. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't expect to, the passage of time was one thing. I didn't really expect the, a lot of these being period pieces that we covered. Mm-hmm. Like I know there's more summer movies out there, but this specific coming of age summer movie i think one to, to shout number we, ha- we haven't talked about that i love the the way way back mm-hmm. with uh with sam rockwell and steve carell and tony collette that's a present day movie um but still has that autobiographical nature mm-hmm. but that's like one of the few that kind of is a coming of age summer movie that feels that's present when everything else is like a, yeah. a period piece but even that one weirdly it's like you know it's like they're they're kind of the the a plot point is that kind of like throwback station wagon and and like yeah. there's not really they're technology. spending the whole summer there yeah, yeah they're spending the whole summer there they're, yeah, they're, yeah they're summering again and it and it's like no one's on their phones through it yeah so you know it's it's not going out of its way to be but it still kind of evokes that feeling of of the, yeah. the older films for sure like like it's from the guys who the guys who wrote it um um is it, is it, Jim oh Rash and Nat Faxon. Jim Rash and, and Nat Faxon. Thank you. I was like, I was, I was mixing the t- mixing the first and the last names up. Um, but yeah, it feels very much autobiographical mm-hmm. as a thing. Yeah. Um, and again, that one too has that kind of meandering kind of plot of or, or story essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no big plot points. And again, it's about mentorship. We talked about and like the the mentor role and the friendship being a kind of a big important thing of these kind. of summer movies we've talked about a lot mm-hmm. even jaws even jaws has the friendship of 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 brody and 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 hooper mm-hmm. like it's developing of a friendship and a weird mentor role with quint if you want to want to stretch <laughs> this a little bit but yeah it's like you kind of have all those elements in these summer movies is the thing yeah all right is that it on the summer movie genre i think so Thomas? was it worth it oh was absolutely it, was it? <laughs> it was exactly the, the right mindset i needed yeah i get it i get it uh and next month it's gonna be a little bit more dramatic baby it's gonna be courtroom dramas got a lot of legal stuff coming up we're gonna be talking about a lot of the big classics we're talking about 12 angry men anatomy of murder a few good men 
my cousin Vinny and witness the prosecution. That's a good lineup. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good lineup of courtroom dramas. So stay tuned for that. Watch some of those movies. Be prepared. Hopefully we won't put you to sleep with all of our legal talk. We know nothing about legal. We had no legal advice for you. That's the thing. Um, but that's all we have for this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at Podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, or even kind words. Send us what you think is, is peak Patrick Swayze if you'd want to. I want to hear, we want to hear what you have to say about that. Um, also, if you're a new listener or a fan of the show and for some reason haven't subscribed to us yet, be sure to do so. Um, to stay up to date on all of our new podcast episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Guys, if if you've had the time of your life listening <laughs> to this podcast, then run like the wind to your preferred podcast plat- platform and leave us a five-star review. <laughs> that's not that's the song title. She's like the wind. But you, <laughs> like the wind. I just I, I, I used half of it. Come on. Yeah, yeah, you know, just yeah. If if you're hungry and your eyes are looking at the review, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. Um, and finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, and thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.